0: Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's red-headed stepchildren. As a red-headed stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson.
1: And I'm Andy Boel, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's Crypt to review Charlie Kaufman's, uh, intense psychodrama, Being John Malkovich. Oh, John Malkovich. Malkovich! 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 being John Malkovich
0: Andy I think you mean the importance of being
1: John Malkovich (laughs) aka the only thing you will refer to this movie as
0: the only thing where well no I will make make exceptions for the importance of there was another one I said today never mind but yes the importance of being John Malkovich because it has a lot in common with the importance of being Ernest. a lot of people want to be John Malkovich
1: uh, they certainly absolutely do, yeah. No, I, I I, think, honestly, that is an apt comparison because, especially in the, like, first third of this movie, it is very much playing off as an absurdist comedy.
0: Yeah, I don't know what I expected the first five minutes of this movie to be, but giant horror show of puppets was not what I wanted.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. And I... <laughs> horror show i completely agree with you i was sitting here just completely unsettled by the uncanny valley effect until i realized at the very end of the movie oh that was an actual man in a puppet costume that they cut together with puppet footage like they intermixed it but anytime the puppet like is moving exceptionally fluidly in a way that made my brain itch. It's clear to me now that it was an actor and they, they made a whole thing of it.
0: Oh, so fascinating. So like so many other Kaufman movies, I finished this movie and I was like, I need to watch that a second time, but I'm too fucking depressed. Yeah.
1: <laughs> To watch it a second time. Okay, so so this is, we can we can talk about this then. You saw this movie first, and it created a mild depressive <laughs> spiraling, and I loved it.
0: Well, so much of this movie has to do with like identity and consent and yeah, um, artistic intention and who we are as people and like. Who We Are as People is one of Kaufman's like, pet fucking projects. And so before we started, you mentioned that you'd never seen another Kaufman movie. And I was a child of the mid-2000s, so I've seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind far more times than I care to admit. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, you've never... Oh. Because his entire... I don't want to say his entire portfolio, but everything I've seen of his is this. Sure. Like it's very clear he has an over to his work.
1: Absolutely, and I, and I will say, despite never having seen any Charlie Kaufman films until this one, I've I've been an admirer from afar is how I would say it. Like I understand Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind is probably the biggest movie I've never seen. And, like, I've had people talk to me about how good adaptation is. And he had a Netflix, uh, he had a film come out on Netflix last year called I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which all I know is it's about a woman who goes to a dinner party already committed to the idea that she's going to kill herself at the end of it. And I am here for that byline.
0: That is very on brand. There is also Anomalisa, which also has the theme of puppets puppetry identification and
1: who we are as people interesting okay
0: so anomalisa like not to veer too wide off of the importance of being john malkovich but it's a movie about a man who's a motivational speaker and literally everyone in his life has the same face Huh. And then he meets a woman at this conference who has a different face and who has a different voice. And, of course, he falls in love with her because he's like, oh, my God, you're yeah.
1: different. Sure.
0: And in the middle of having sex with this woman, committing an affair, because affairs are also a theme <sighs> in Kaufman's work. Sure. In the middle of having sex with her, he comes to realize that she is has everyone's voice and has everyone's face. Oh, no. It's heartbreaking and terrible and wonderful and a very good movie, but also, like, that same feeling of just, like, I need to take a warm bath and eat some cheese about this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I will say, as much as I enjoyed the film, uh, heartbreaking and wonderful are probably the most apt descriptors. This is a... Dark movie. This is absolutely a philosophical like roller coaster, and it was incredibly well done. And so I, I very much enjoyed that. But before we dive too far deep into it, I, I do want to say, in case people missed the film, uh, this is one of the most original plot outlines I think we've ever seen, and that's saying something considering this is a cult film show. Uh, but the importance of being John Malkovich. In- ah. Damn it, I didn't even mean to do that. (laughs) You're winning. Sorry,
0: please continue.
1: Being John Malkovich is about Craig Schwartz, a disgruntled, unemployed puppeteer who gets a filing clerk job to support his exotic veterinarian wife in an office located on the seventh and a half floor of an office building. Once there, he discovers a covered up portal in his office that transports him into the head of real life actor John Malkovich. And in an effort to impress the co-worker he is lusting after, begins selling people access to this tunnel while becoming involved in one of the strangest and most unethical love triangles ever.
0: That's pretty on the money. <laughs> also, there's extremely get outy vibes because, spoiler alert, his boss is also obsessed with the idea of living in the mind of John Malkovich.
1: Yeah. After seeing this film and not never having seen it before, I am convinced this is one of Jordan Peele's favorite movies ever. Mm-hmm. Because this is so close to Get Out. Mm-hmm. You have the cabal of old whites who are like just transporting themselves directly into other people's bodies to find the secret of mortality. And you have Catherine Keener Who is an amoral, waspy, bad person Uh in both of these films. (laughs) Nobody in this film is good. Oh, absolutely The most unambiguously ethical character is John Malkovich. Or the cab
0: driver who thinks he's a jewel thief.
1: Or the cab driver who is convinced that he was in some movie where he played a jewel thief which I am I am convinced that the cab driver was talking about the film Entrapment starring Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones but that I is my know. own head
0: I love the idea that like he is insert garden variety bald white dude here yeah so it's like oh yeah you were in this movie because he's John Malkovich is not a physically, like, wonderfully appealing human.
1: No, he, he looks like a normal guy, is the way I'll say that. Exactly!
0: And so, like, it's so great that all these people want to be him, and I have a theory. Okay. It's because they don't have to deal with the subconscious. Sure. In being John Malkovich, the only subconscious they have is their own subconscious and because their body, the body that they're in, and that they're in John Malkovich's body- Right. Doesn't correspond with their subconscious, they're able to separate the two.
1: Absolutely, I think that is a huge chunk of it, the other part probably being they are not in control of the physical sensations, mm-hmm. but they still receive the mental stimuli Mm -hmm. So it's like how you can't tickle yourself, but somebody else can tickle you if you are a ticklish person. It's that, but everything.
0: I think that makes sense. I think there's so many parts of the movie where people who are spat out onto the Jersey Turnpike, because that's what happens 15 minutes after. Right. Um Except in the latter half of the film are saying oh my gosh that felt so good I'm so happy a lot of them are crying after they emerge like they've just had some amazing emotional experience
1: (laughs) And it's such an interesting and heartbreaking like thing you get these regular people, you get people who presumably have a, a deep longing and unhappiness in their lives and this becomes a just groundbreaking, like, soul-shattering experience for them in a positive way. You know, you have uh, Lottie, played by Cameron Diaz, who is tremendously impacted by the experience. And we see other people who, like you mentioned, are, are brought to tears. And there's the one guy who just starts hugging everybody and is like, Oh, you're my friends. And he's like weeping while he's doing it. Everybody has this experience except for John Cusack's Craig.
0: I'm trying to remember now. Does he not have a fantastic
1: experience? Well, he So he kind of does, but it takes him all of like an evening to start trying to use this as a way to impress Katherine Keener, and make her like him, and becomes the you know the willing associate to her completely immoral idea of oh well let's just sell this let's make a buck like he he has half of a wonderful brilliant moment enough to introduce it to Lottie, but then just completely like gets mired down in his own bullshit. Mm. And so that makes this a perfectly good enough time to say, I think Craig Schwartz is one of the singular worst people we have ever seen on this show.
0: I'm so glad you said that because in your notes you said, I think Maxine is pure evil. And I was like, no, no, Craig is worse somehow.
1: Craig is worse somehow, but I would argue that uh, Maxine is still more evil. Craig is repugnant, Craig is pathetic, Craig is despicable. The the movie sets up the unethical love triangle between Craig Lottie and Maxine and kind of writes in a happy ending for Lottie and Maxine who wind up having a child together with John Malkovich as a biological proxy. Mm -hmm. And, like, get to ride off into the suburban pool enclosure with their daughter together. Sure. But, like, aside from regret, there is never anything I can see that shows that Maxine is anything other than a, like, completely self-serving to the sacrifice of her own morality... Mentally abusive, manipulative, like bad person. Like again, to talk to talk about Jordan Peele and Get Out, I am now convinced that he cast Catherine Keener as the mom in Get Out on purpose. Oh, for sure. Because of being John Malkovich and Craig is worse.
0: Craig is worse. I will say, I think Maxine is opportunist to the point, and not to quote the work of a turf, but she's a Slytherin.
1: Like mm-hmm. she is
0: just so fucking driven and she will do what she has to do. So to the point where she doesn't reconsider Craig as an option until Lottie tells Maxine he can control him. It's something about his work as being a puppet. And you can practically like <blooming> Mm-hmm. see the dollar signs in Maxine's eyes like a fucking lotto ticket setting off.
1: Well, right, and I think that's why I would argue that she is more amoral than Craig. Craig does some despicable things in this film, but Craig, Craig's motivation is entirely born out of I want success, I want respect for my work, I want recognition, I want this woman I'm... Desperately puppy dog in love with to love me. I go through the portal. So he he is still getting like that fix of Going through John Malkovich and experiencing John Malkovich Catherine Maxine is the only main character who never takes control and is never riding shotgun through John Malkovich's eyes and she still does everything she does.
0: So this enters into a really interesting philosophical debate where I don't think Craig is any less evil than Maxine because he's still manipulating another person for his own gain. And despite, you know, oh, he loves this woman, it's lust. Sure. Despite the fact that he's doing it to further his art, he's taking over the consciousness of another person to further his own material gains. Like, okay, yeah, it's art, that's great. He literally changes the direction of an entire human's life away from their original intention towards puppetry. So he's like, hey, I know I'm John Malkovich now, so he's going to stop acting entirely, and now he's a puppet
1: dude. Sure. And and I, I can totally concede that. I can concede that Craig is as evil as Maxine, because Craig is a truly heinous character. Like, I have not disliked a main character as much since we watched Pusher.
0: Interesting. Yeah, because it's that same level of, like, look, this is what I have to
1: do. Yeah.
0: And it's so fascinating because, like, I had sympathy for Craig up until he locked Lottie in a cage. Sure. And then I was like, "Mm, no, I can't. I can't. I cannot abide by this. Because clearly he's unhappy. Clearly he's going through depression. He does a lot of reprehensible stuff. And then he locks his wife in a cage.
1: Yeah. Yeah. After after mm-hmm. holding her at gunpoint and telling her to tell the woman they are jointly in love with to engage in a sexual activity that Maxine thinks is happening with Lottie, but is actually happening with Craig. <laughs> you wrote in your notes, this film mm. is a giant conversation about consent. And I think that's absolutely right.
0: Well, on so many... Layer, Because the obvious layer is, like, John Malkovich doesn't consent to any part of this.
1: Right, and it's it's made clear that he is either conscious because he is still the one driving his body, or even when he's not, it becomes worse. It becomes the get-out scenario where he is fully conscious, but also not the one driving his body.
0: Exactly, and there's that, uh, like... I don't even think it's as long as 15 seconds where Craig leaves his body and he has a moment before someone else leave, enters his body. And he's like, oh, thank God. And he catches a breath. And then it's like, I think it's the doctor.
1: Dr. or Dr. Lester. Thank you. Yeah.
0: So there's that level of consent. But there's also the number of times that Craig is in John as Lottie fucking Maxine. So, like, it's consent on that level. Yeah. It's a lot.
1: It's it's a whole lot. And The most fascinating thing is it becomes a question of when is this, like, the most grossly unethical because Craig does all the stuff that he does, but even Lottie, who is kind of presented as the most likable of our main characters still commits numerous acts of non-consensual voyeurism Mm -hmm. through John Malkovich. So she is, she has like an inch more leg to stand on than anybody else.
0: And I think that's one of the things I love about Kaufman's work is that he points out so many people are terrible And they're degrees of terrible, and it's like, which level are you going to be okay with? So, like, in Anomalisa, the movie I told you about, the woman who has her own face is aware when she sleeps with the guy who sees everyone, Mm -hmm. she's aware he's married. They have a whole conversation about his spouse, and she still chooses to sleep with him. So it's like, she's not a good person she's just not the person who's having an affair. She's just not the person who halfway through having sex with someone gets up and leaves. So it's like Kaufman's work is constantly interrogating like the sense of morality. Yeah. And I think that's really heavily examined here of like, what do you examine in the sense where you can enter someone else's body Like, what is good? What is an ethical use of that? The ethical use of that would be to not use it.
1: Right, exactly. And that's why, like, there is truly nobody going down the entire cast list is, like, good until you get to our victim, John Malkovich, who plays himself and is kind of delightful. See the world through John Malkovich's eyes? (laughs) And then after about 15 minutes? That's not me! I didn't say that! You're spit out into a ditch on the side of a New Jersey turnpike.
0: He's so sweet. He's so, like, just very... um, I want to say even is the word that comes to mind.
1: Yeah, I, I, I saw it as, like, he's demure. Yeah. You know, the conversation he's having with the cab driver. This guy's kind of being insulting and kind of being presumptuous. He's like, oh, yeah, hey, you're, you're that actor, aren't you? And John Malkovich is like, yep, I'm him. And starts telling him he's in a movie he's not. And he's like, mm, I don't think that was me. Anyway, John Malkovich playing himself. And, and I love it because, like. Apparently in interviews, he was like, yeah, I treated the character of John Horatio Malkovich like I would treat any other character. Like I would treat Richard III when he's playing himself. It's, it's delightful. It's, it, he comes <laughs> across in a way that is like just really sweet and, and like he deserves your sympathy. And it, it's wonderful because John Malkovich is like well known for playing like assholes in <laughs> film himself.
0: Mm-hmm. but
1: is able to present himself in a, in a more, like, appropriate manner.
0: And I think one of the other instances we get is where someone comes up to him at a restaurant and says, oh, you played that R word, referring to his role in of mice and men. And he's like, yep, sure did. And that person's like, well, my cousin's an R word. And he's like,
1: that's... I don't think we... I don't think there's anything to talk about here.
0: And he's just like very polite, very even keeled, and just lovely. And then everyone else in this movie is a trash human. Yes. Which makes it debatably worse that Lottie and Maxine get a very lovely sapphic ending where they get to go on picnics with their daughter at the swimming pool. That's what I'm saying! (laughs) They're like, Tra-la-la, we get to go live in our sapphic
1: suburban paradise. Hey, I know you chased me through a man's subconscious with a gun, but I was always in love with you, I'll say, now that, like, this has played out to its logical extent.
0: I actually kind of want to assume, and this is super reading into it, but I want to assume that Maxine's like, well, I have done literally everything. Let me be gay in the 90s.
1: Sure. (laughs)
0: Let me just... You know what? It's fine. It's fine.
1: And it does make sense because, like, she gets all the money and influence. There's a bit where after she's married John Malkovich, like, the tabloid people are saying, like, she's seeking her own representation to start her own career. Yeah. And, like, so the seeds are there for them, like, once Maxine got all the money and comfort she will ever need... That's when she turned her eye to actual matters of the heart and chose Lottie. Which, again, some might argue is bad.
0: Well, and it just feels forced because it's like, well, you're here. Like, the idea that people just marry the partner they're with at the age that they assume people are going to be married by. Right. They're like, looks around, oh, you're here? Cool, let's do this thing.
1: They give us like one 10 second scene where Maxine is like, she has a little doll of Lottie and she's like apologizing to it. And so it's meant to convey that, you know, Maxine always actually loved her when Maxine said she loved her. I keep saying her for Lottie. Do we want to talk about that and how that's kind of a sticky wicket? (laughs)
0: That is a sticky wicket. So Lottie, after her experience in the importance of being John Malkovich, <laughs> discovers that she really likes the sensation of having a penis and being a man and decided, decides to tell Craig, I think I'm a man, I think I'm, I think she says transsexual, which proves this is a movie that's before its time. Right. And she says, I'm I'm trans. And Craig handles it about as well as you'd expect John Cusack's character in this movie to
1: handle. About as well as you would expect a depressed white man in 1999
0: to <laughs> handle. And so that he just is like no you're no you're not Mm -hmm. and also later he says see this is what happens men have to deal with things too Lottie it's hard for men too which is like fuck you right okay white man okay white cis straight man
1: (laughs) (laughs) so certainly um, even Kaufman in the 90s is not above like a little bit of a social critiquing, I think.
0: Oh, absolutely not. This movie didn't age well in so many
1: circumstances. Right, which we've already I think talked about the main bulk of them, but absolutely you're right. Yeah. I want to go back a second. So, when Charlie Kaufman wrote The Importance of Being John Malkovich, he was committed that it had to be John Malkovich. (laughs) (laughs) To the point where he first approached Malkovich and his representation about this. And they read the script and they were like, we think this is amazing. I just, I don't know if if I'm the right guy for this. Oh, please
0: tell me JM was like... I just don't know if I'm worthy of this project.
1: Well, he like he was like, do it with an action star instead. I think he was like, do the importance of being Tom Cruise.
0: <laughs> the importance of being Bruce Willis.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and Coffin was like, No, it's gotta be you. This movie cannot be made unless it's John Malkovich. He got Spike Jones on board, and Spike Jones is like, I get it, I get your vision. This has to be John Malkovich. And going back to Malkovich's performance, yeah, it had to be a non-action star. It it couldn't have been the importance of being Will Smith or somebody who is on, like, a Hollywood's most hot list because, like, that doesn't work in serving the character the same way, I think.
0: Well, it doesn't make it like everyone when they have their John Malkovich moment, they come out and they're like, "That was amazing." And correct me if I if this is just me, but like when I was watching the movie, I was like, "You were a meh, famous white dude."
1: Well, and that's why I think it's not about John Malkovich. It's just it's yeah. it's one of the weird monkey wrenches. It's it's one of the Mad Libs that Kaufman was doing where he was like. Give me me an actor, uh, Brad Pitt. No, give me another actor, John Malkovich. That works.
0: That's the bitch. Because
1: it's not about being John Malkovich. It's about being somebody else.
0: Exactly. It's kind of like the John Green dice where you can roll it and come up with the plot for a John Green novel where (laughs) you're like, I'm a math genius who's in love with a girl who's dying of cancer. Right. It's that same feel of, like, I need someone who's just...
1: Eh. Somebody who is, like, ballpark famous enough to have means and money. But beyond that, it really doesn't matter. Because, like, one of the the only questions the movie leaves you hanging with is how the shit does any of this work. We find out this has happened a couple of times. Like... Dr. Lester is actually Captain Merton, merchant guy from the 1800s. Who married the small person. Who marries a, a small person in what we are led to believe is a true accounting in an orientation video. It gets, again, very absurdist comedy. Um, but like this is like the second or third time this dude has possessed somebody, and they leave us at the end where you find out that Lottie and Maxine's daughter, by way of John Malkovich, is the next vessel. And you get the horrifying dun dun dun, where John Malkovich brings in was was his face, um, Emilio Estevez's brother. <laughs> <laughs> that's how long charlie sheen's been out of the limelight that i had to like think of it that way (laughs) brings bald cap charlie sheen into his room and is like hey charlie do you want to live forever i'm a nightmare amalgamation of dozens of different people living behind the eyes of a man you once called your friend but do you want to live forever
0: And this is what's-her-face, isn't, I think it's like Emma. Yeah. Emily, isn't she beautiful? And it's just like one shot of Emily. Right. And then we go to Emily swimming in the pool, and Craig is in her head. But it's very clear Craig is not in control, because when Lottie and Maxine kiss, you hear Craig's voice saying, look away, look away, look away, look away. And the camera stays on Emily's face and she's staring straight forward at her parents
1: kissing. Right, which the movie had had paid a line to of like, if you try to go through the portal after Malkovich's 44th birthday, you get stuck in the other person permanently. Mm -hmm. Which Craig, of course, doesn't know and is his Black Mirror-esque, karmic retribution for being just a complete garbage human being
0: which took me probably two hours and a glass of wine to like cope with because i didn't realize that he was stuck sure and so i was like oh at the end of the day the fucking rapist wins are you kidding me that's the that's the method and message we're going with and then alex had to Because he watched this one with me. He was like, no, because remember, he's saying, look away, look away, look away, and she doesn't. And I was like, oh, that changes the end of the movie for me. I have to, like, reevaluate it.
1: Yeah, the man who commits rape on screen loses. The man who presumably does something similar, we just never see it, wins. The old white man wins as opposed to the young white man. Sure, I guess that's... Uh-huh. I want her to shiver with a spasm of ecstasy, Schwartz, as I penetrate her... Dr. Wet... Lester, while I'm flattered you would share your feelings with me, perhaps the workplace is not the most suitable environment for this type of discussion. So I, I, I want to talk... Um, a little bit about just some some stuff, mostly about the first third of this movie. The first third of this movie was the whimsical joy ride where I'm texting you being like, oh, I love this. Huh. I am so here for this. This is weird as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, returning to cult fiction in a double, um, double appearance joining the likes of all of John Waters' friends who've been on the show multiple times, we had another Octavia Spencer cameo. <gasps> She's in the elevator! She is the woman who shows Craig where the seven and a half floor is.
0: She's the one who sticks the stick into the elevator doors and goes, here you go.
1: Yep. <laughs> so just another, another like... You're only there for a day at most, probably half a day. Get in, get out, do your role, be memorable, be great. We love an Octavia Spencer.
0: We do love an Octavia Spencer. You know what else we
1: love? What else do we love? We love a Coraline door. We do love a Coraline door. Because
0: this movie, absolutely, if we're talking about the first third of the movie, when Craig discovers the tiny door that leads to the tunnel that is Malkovich's mind, the first thing I said was, Coraline door. Because it's tiny and small, Mm -hmm. and as he's crawling through, I'm like... Did Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean watch this movie?
1: The timelines work.
0: Right? Because this was 99. Coraline came out in 2003, I want to say. Yeah. So, like, references of just, you know, Craig climbing through this very, like, sticky corridor. And I was like, that's where
1: they got it. So, this is the part where I confess to you that after a while I was referring it into my head as the mind vagina
0: well sure because Lottie straight up calls it like he has like a vagina in his mind which was by right. the way my quote
1: because she talks about how oh, I didn't mean to steal it from no
0: you. you're fine she just talks about how, like, he has a vagina in his mind, and she's like, and I really like that. And you can tell the more she talks about his mind vagina, mm-hmm. she's like, getting turned on. Right? It's very silly.
1: It is very silly. How good is Cameron Diaz in this?
0: Oh my god. For the first 20 minutes, I was like, this isn't Cameron Diaz. Who is Cameron Diaz in this
1: movie? Oh. Little Lottie is absolutely Cameron Diaz wearing a teased out wig and glasses and baggy clothes. And I I truly want to like give credit where it's due, more than anything, just inhabiting a different human than Cameron Diaz usually inhabits in film. I want
0: to think that like this was Cameron Diaz's, like, of that time that was her
1: favorite role. I I would imagine it's got to be it's it's the most like okay we are making capital A art out of this film role like the she, this was sandwiched between there's something about Mary <laughs> sex comedy of the late nineties and Charlie's Angels which is good. In a turn your brain off popcorn munching blockbuster kind of yeah, way. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well and I think I think that's kind of how Kaufman approaches women, because there's in Eternal Sunshine, there's Kirsten Dunst mm. in her most artistic role. And like two years later she was Mary Jane and Spider-Man, where she was just like, Peter, I'm someone to project your fantasies on. <laughs> as a new woo, but like in my mind she does. I
1: will allow it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna have to check out all the other Kaufman joints and, and figure this out. But yeah, this, this very much because like John Cusack, respected actor, arguably to the same extent as John Malkovich. Catherine Keener, like respectable actor. Cameron Diaz, most known for being like the hot chick from The Mask (laughs) at the time of casting. and I I, I think it was a brilliant move on everybody's part to have her be included in the role. I
0: just truly didn't recognize her, which is why I know, like, you were spoiling all my segments, but my Oscar for this movie is Uh, Best Wig. Sure. Because her wig, like... Her wig alone made me be like, that's not Cameron Diaz. And yet. And yet. And yet, it totally is.
1: (laughs) Totally is. Playing somebody with nuance and complexity and is only like dated in the way that most characters from the 90s are dated. Oh, bless. (laughs) Um, So, this movie reminded us of a couple of different films. Uh, Because I was wholly unfamiliar with anything other than just, like, the broad strokes, I watched the trailer for being John Malkovich before I watched John Malkovich. Sure. Because it's a trailer. It's not going to give too much away. Uh Uh-huh. But the immediate thing I noticed is the exact same theme song music from the movie Brazil was playing over the trailer. And it's so weird because it doesn't actually appear anywhere in the film, but it planted this perfect seed in my mind of then comparing this to Brazil. Sure. Another dystopian, whimsical comedy of absurdity that I love the first half of and made you sad. (laughs)
0: And made me have to re-examine my mental health for a couple of days. It's fine. It's
1: fine. But just everything about the first, like, again, 30, 40 minutes of the show. Sure. Everything about the seventh and a half, seventh and a half floor. This idea of, like, yeah, we work in an office building where we all have to stoop. And here's this weird orientation video about an Irish sea captain marrying a little person. And... Here's this puppeteer who, on the street corner, is performing erotic, like, hard Renaissance-era love stories and getting the shit kicked out of him because, objectively, that is a bad way to be doing your street performance.
0: (laughs) The way that I referred to it um, was, like, Willy Wonka, but corporate uh-huh. Especially with the ducking of the seventh and a half floor, because there is a scene in um Gene Ost.
1: Gene Wilder's. Gene
0: Wilder's. Uh, thank you. Willy Wonka where he like they go down this increasingly tight corner and then Gene Wilder like opens the door and then it's the chocolate room and then yeah. we have the song of <laughs> I can't remember the name of the song, if you wanna dream of something, 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 something. But the whole point being, like, the movie is incredibly absurd comedy for the first, like, 40 minutes. And that's fun and weird and bizarre and great. And then you have, like, the rape metaphor. And then you have, hey, let's examine the really deep depression of what being a human can mean. And then it's like, that's when I texted you, I hate this. (laughs) I'm depressed now. I need to go on a drive. Mm
1: -hmm. And so I like geared myself up and was like, oh my God, this is so wacky and weird. And like, oh, his boss is like incredibly bizarre. And, and is this really lewd lascivious dude. And the secretary can't hear shit, but insists that it's everybody else's fault. Like, okay. I mean, oh my God, he locked her in a cage. (laughs) Oh, no.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. And Charlie Sheen is in a very unfortunate bald cap.
1: Charlie Sheen is in an awful bald cap. You know what? You you went ahead and listed your Oscar. I'm just going to go ahead and throw mine out there. Uh, I would like to give this movie the Oscar for worst bald cap. Sure. Best wig, worst bald cap. Yeah, it's fitting. It's like poetry. Specifically for whatever the hell they slapped onto Charlie Sheen's head in the final scene (laughs) to, like, signify time has passed. Which is a ludicrous thing to do for 1999 Charlie Sheen anyway, to not assume that he would, like, get hair plugs or something.
0: Sure, everyone else is doing it in 1999.
1: (laughs) And just, like... It, it He looks like Herman Munster. He's got a solid <laughs> two extra inches of head. It's awful. Um,
0: <laughs> well, if we're going to pursue our closing segments, did you have a quote
1: for this movie? I did have a quote. I thought that was important for something like as like, where the writer's as big of a deal as Charlie Kaufman is. And the quote I had is when Lottie is talking about their pet chimpanzee, which, by the way, there's a pet chimpanzee.
0: Well, veterinarian wife or pet shop owner.
1: Exotic pet shop owner, veterinary enthusiast.
0: Who's to say, really? It's
1: unclear, but goddamn, you'll never see another one in any film ever because this is so original. (laughs) Um, Lottie is telling Craig about the chimpanzee. He has childhood trauma, feelings of inadequacy as a chimp. And that is a gold comedic line when you think that Lottie is just like a little too invested in the animal and just a little bit nuts. But then there is the wait, what the fuck is going on scene where she is locked in the cage and we get a flashback through the chimpanzee's eyes of the chimpanzee's childhood trauma so that he can like figure out how to untie her her wrist shackles.
0: Do you want me to make this far too real for you? Sure. During that scene we had to mute the TV because Nico was losing his goddamn mind and was Ah, ah, ah. whining and looked the most sad I've ever seen him.
1: Oh, buddy.
0: So, like, I feel like Nico is deep of empathy and sweet of heart.
1: And terrified of (laughs) chimpanzee noises.
0: (laughs) Okay, yeah, if you're going to make it cheap, sure, whatever. I will say I appreciate that as your quote. I thought the whole thing about the mind vagina was my quote, but now that I'm looking back on my notes, I had picked another quote. Would you like to hear it? I
1: absolutely would.
0: This is the most poety thing I've ever said, but I can very much appreciate the line, nobody's looking for a puppeteer in today's wintry economic climate. (laughs) And I looked back on that and I was like, yeah, of course I made that my fucking quote. (laughs)
1: Well, I mean, you and I could each talk personally about, like, the existential dread of being a creative type who, like, I felt deep empathy for first five minutes, Craig, as he's, like, depressed that nobody wants to hire a puppeteer. Mm
0: -hmm. As
1: I am a video (laughs) uh, production person who may or may not be getting out of video production depending on my own wintry economic climate.
0: I believe in you, pal. You know what else I believe in?
1: Uh, the importance of Kevin Bacon. The
0: importance of Kevin Bacon. (laughs) But because you are a guest in my home where we record, I'd like you to go first. Oh, it's
1: because I'm a guest. It's not because I'm pretty sure you beat me. Um, so actually I can do this in two. Uh, This being the importance of being John Malkovich, I I thought it important to use John Horatio Malkovich in my uh, Kevin Bacon pick. And one of the things that made him a, a legend of American acting is he was in the 1987 filmed version of The Glass Menagerie as main character Tom. In The Glass Menagerie, and this is a wild stretch for me, is Karen Allen. Karen Allen, who is also one of the female protagonists of Animal House. One of the greatest and probably most horribly dated uh, (laughs) raunchy comedies of the late 70s with the esteemed Kevin Bacon.
0: This is true, and I love that for you.
1: <laughs> but,
0: but, Andy, Stevener John Malkovich, was in *Queen's Logic* with Kevin. Bacon. <sighs> that was the
1: that was the original reason I picked Malkovich. Is I was like, there's got to be some, like these guys had their heyday in the right decade for there to be like a movie I should know about. I don't know about Queen's Logic. I've never heard of Queen's Logic.
0: You have, because we've absolutely used it for Bacons before. But also, it apparently looks like a movie that you and I would absolutely love. So, like, incidentally, oh, it's super not cult. Okay. But speaking of which, Andy, I don't fucking think this movie is cult, bub.
1: Okay, make your argument, because I do. I absolutely do.
0: It made so much money. Did it?
1: I'm looking at the box office gross right in front of me.
0: Okay, tell me, tell me.
1: It cost $13 million to make. Okay. Had an opening weekend of just over half a million and a worldwide gross of 23 That was
0: a lot of numbers. You know I don't do well with
1: those. Well, the point is, and I, I've talked about this, but it's been a minute, so I'll, I'll inform you and the listeners. A movie has to make three times its budget in order to be considered a success. So this would have had to have made at minimum 39 million dollars. It only made 23.
0: Okay.
1: Especially for a directorial debut from Spike Jones, like this, this did not make its money. Oh, this was his first. This he had done commercials, he had done some music videos. He was married to Sophia Coppola, which
0: I'm sorry, how did you pron- pronounce her name?
1: Sophia Coppola? Coppola? Coppola. 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 Uh. Uh.
0: You have a film podcast, my boy.
1: And I've never seen Eternal Sunshine.
0: And have you seen The Godfather?
1: Yes, with a baby in my lap.
0: All right, we need to talk about that later. Was it your baby? Do you have a secret baby, Andy?
1: No. It was my niece. Oh. It was my baby niece. Okay, that
0: makes way more sense. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so you think that this is called... Coppola. 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 Coppola.
1: This amateur hour of a person over here. It also... Didn't it win a thing? So I know for a fact it was nominated for three Oscars, um, which I suppose it's fitting that we have now already talked about our oscars um i am trying to determine if it won anything uh yeah so the importance of being john malkovich thank you was nominated best actress for katherine keener best director for spike jones and best writing screenplay for charlotte Kaufman. it won none of them so okay i think it would have a stronger argument had it won an oscar okay i Andy, okay and this is just so weird like what the unofficial cult thing for me beyond any other metric i've ever assigned is is this a movie you hear about for years and years and years despite never actually seeing yes yes
0: yes because i have heard of this movie so much and I've always been like oh I've never seen it and people have been like oh, you have to see it it's so weird and artsy that's like your thing yeah. and then I watched it and I was like oh this is my thing except it's fucking depressing
1: <laughs> this is my thing except it's nightmares <laughs> um, in, in place of the Oscar, something I wanted to bring up and, and forgot is just like the philosophical nightmare implications for John Malkovich both in the nightmare scene where he is in a a fancy restaurant and everybody has his face and voice. I hate it. And can only say Malkovich. (laughs) Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. Which is a brilliant sequence, and I have no idea how they did it, and I really wish I knew how. Um, But also just like in general, like you stumble, you, you go to what you were told is an escape room. And instead, like, next to the arcade, there's something called the Andy door. Mm-hmm. Or the Stephanie door. Mm-hmm. And you walk up and you're like, what? What is this? And they go, oh, this is crazy. You walk through this door and for 15 minutes, you're inside and behind the eyes of Stephanie Johnson. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Terrifying.
0: Fucking
1: He has every right to freak out as much as he does when he discovers what's going on.
0: And he does, though. Like, he pushes his way to the fucking front of the line and is like, no, no, it's my fucking turn. Goes into his own goddamn head and is like, cool, I'm in my head and everyone's me and they could only say my adopted last name because there's no way Malkovich is his original last name.
1: You know, I don't know. I'm going to not look into it. Okay, John Horatio. Horatio. So I do think the Horatio part was added for the film just so that, like, he could tell himself at night that it wasn't actually him. And that there wasn't some office room in, like, New York that, like...
0: I need to, I need to, I need to, hold on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the thing. John Malkovich. American actor. I'm gonna look him up. I don't think this is his real name. Okay, he was born December 9th, nineteen fifty-three.
1: His father, Daniel Leon Malkovich. No
0: <laughs> oh. oh, his mom's French, of course. Mm. Joanne the well, He grew up with an older brother named Danny. Younger sister's Amanda, Rebecca, Melissa. Oh, he's a middle child, bless.
1: That's what led him to such oh. great lengths in acting. Oh, what did you just read?
0: Uh, All of his siblings are dead except for Melissa. His grandparents are Croatian immigrants. All right. During his high school years, he appeared in various plays in the musical Carousel. What the
1: fuck? I, I do love that this is, has turned into the, like, this annotated reading of John Malkovich's, like, Wikipedia page. Wikipedia page. <laughs>
0: I, what? Okay, but also Horatio is not part of it.
1: No, that, so like I said, that part was added just so that like he could sleep at night.
0: <laughs> but also, what the fuck?
1: Okay, well now I have to ask you, and, and, and maybe this will go nowhere. Do you have a favorite Malkovich role? I
0: think probably Lenny. And Mice of Men. That's
1: that's a very good answer. Yeah, that's a very good answer. That's very fair.
0: I do appreciate that in this movie they name-dropped Gary Sinise, but he never fucking makes an appearance because that would be too much fan service, but they just do a light
1: sprinkling. Yeah, just give you a little bit, you know?
0: Just, like, a touch of spice. (laughs)
1: That's fair. Um, I very much enjoy him in a film I've showed you called Velvet Buzzsaw. Which is like a horror movie. No, wait. Who is he in? He's the drunk asshole who can't create art because he's sober. <gasps> Aka the only person in that movie who doesn't die besides David Diggs.
0: Okay, but real talk, Velvet Buzzsaw. That's such a good movie, and I so appreciate you showing me it. And I completely forgot Malkovich was in it. Eh? Because I was focused on the fact that a woman's tattoo murders her at the end.
1: I mean, yeah, that's very much, I I get it. Like, I I understand why that was not your main takeaway from Velvet Buzzsaw is that, oh, it's not giving Malkovich work.
0: Like And I would say, like, oh, spoiler alert, someone's tattoo murders them. But, like, that movie is so fucking crazy. I promise you that's not going to be the thing you think about while you're watching the movie.
1: No, no, absolutely not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Andy, you know what else isn't the thing we think about while we're talking about this movie but is also my favorite part?
1: figuring out what the next movie is?
0: Yes.
1: That's very fair. I don't think Velvet Buzzsaw is called, so it's not on the list. However... Boo! We do have 285 films that we are going to let The Hollywood Crypt go ahead and select for us. We do this every episode on cult fiction and put our hands in fate. And in putting our hands in fate, the next movie we are going to be seeing... Is one hundred and seventy-two,
0: which is one hundred and
1: seventy-two. We're going back to the eighties. Oh no! For something I have, I have heard spoken in hushed infamy. Oh dear. Gary Goddard's nineteen eighty-seven, um, Frank Langella starring fantasy trash can fire masters of the universe. This is the fucking live action He-Man movie.
0: You owe me so many ice
1: creams. Deal. I promise this will have you feeling less existential angst than what we just watched.
0: I don't know. It's a He-Man live action. Who's to fucking say? (laughs) Well... That is all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also rate, review, and listen on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we find out who exactly does have the power as Stephanie and I watch 1987's Masters of the Universe. Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell.